Good morning. It is a joy to be with you all this Lord's Day morning, and I am so thankful for the opportunity to bring God's Word to you all. Uh, It is a joy, but also it is a very sobering thing, sobering task. Um, But nonetheless, I I am thankful to do that. So if you will, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2 this morning as we consider characteristics of true spiritual service. Philippians chapter 2, and we will be looking at verses 19 through 30. But before we do, I would just like to recap once again. Um, Up to this point, Paul, in the bigger picture of Philippians has so far updated us on his circumstances. Paul is in a prison writing this letter to the Philippian church to encourage them. Paul has shown us the progress of the gospel, though he is imprisoned, though there are many in the church who preach Christ from selfish ambition. The gospel is furthered, and so in that, Paul rejoices and calls the church to rejoice. Paul has exhorted the church to live in and pursue unity, all rooted in the glories of Christ, which Paul has shown us as well. His incarnation, Christ condescending, taking on human form to fulfill the purpose of his Father. And by that, he has encouraged us also to follow Christ's example and to be obedient to him. We now find ourselves at verses 19 through 30, a rather interesting portion of Scripture because Paul here takes a break from his exhortation and tells us his future plans. In his future plans, however, though they may seem out of the way or out of the ordinary from what we're used to, clear and cut commands. There is deep, excuse me, deep, rich truth for us to consider in these verses. In these verses, 19 through 30, we see the characteristics of true spiritual service. So let's read. Starting in verse 19, the word of God says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send to you Timothy... To you shortly, so that I also may be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will be genuinely concerned about your circumstances. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately. As soon as I evaluate my own circumstances and I am confident in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly, but I regarded it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I have sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, 
and I may be less concerned. Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking in your service to me. Once more, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we consider your word this morning, as Brian has already paid, prayed, as Brother Terry has already prayed, Lord, your word is sufficient for everything. Not one word is wasted. Not one word is filler. But it is all for our edification so that we may learn and become more like Christ. God, I ask that you would give me the words that I ought to say. That Christ would be made known in our lives. Father, that we would be convicted where we need to be convicted. That we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged. And Father, that we would be changed for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the church as a whole, there are many servants of the Lord Jesus Christ that I look up to, whose service to the church has far-reaching and vast impacts for the gospel, for the Lord's remnant. I think of the giants of our day, like R.C. Sproul, Steve Lawson, Joel Beakey, Mike Riccardi, the list could go on. Think for a moment of the spiritual giants that you all look up to. Even people who aren't here with us alive anymore, who have been long dead and been with the Lord for a long time, I look up to as well. And I know so do all of you. Last summer, if you recall, we looked at a few of those big giants of the faith. We looked at George Mueller, whose prayer life and evangelism turned Europe upside down for Christ. We looked at Amy Carmichael, whose passion and zeal for the gospel led to the release and safety and salvation of hundreds of orphans, many of which came to Christ. We also looked at Robert Murray McShane, whose supreme love for the Lord led him to serve with all his might till he passed away at age 29 years old. We also looked at Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, physician, turned physician of men's souls, preacher. It's difficult for me to just look up to one person because each one is unique. And again, their impact for the gospel and for Christ has vast reaches. It's also difficult to look up to just one because you see how all of these individuals are connected to one another. If you know anything about the giants of our day, you know that Steve Lawson was connected to MacArthur because of R.C. Sproul. And R.C. Sproul knew James Montgomery Boyce because of his connection with his professor and prolific theologian, John Gerstner. They're all connected in various ways, all of them having impacts on one another, even going back to the Puritans. 
And as much as I love and we love and need those towering figures in our lives, it is not just those who have an impact for Christ. It is not just those who have conferences, books, radio programs who have an impact for the Lord. It is those who are faithful to Christ day by day in the trenches, week in and week out, doing the slow and steady work of serving Christ and his church. It is you. It is the Timothys and the Epaphroditus's that have a massive impact for the Lord. And that is who we ought to be, who we ought to model the Timothys and the Epaphroditus's. And through these verses, we see the characteristics of true spiritual service that we ought to emulate through Paul, through Timothy, and through Epaphroditus. So the first set of characteristics that I want us to consider are found in Paul. Look at verse 19 of Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, I hope in the Lord to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. Let's take that first phrase. For example, Paul says, I hope in the Lord. This can summarize all of Paul's thoughts on everything. Everything Paul did, whether imprisoned, whether in abundance or whether with little, no matter where he was at, his hope was in the Lord. His hope was in the Lord. Here, hope comes from the Greek word elpizo, which means an earnestness, an eagerness. It's not just some kind of hope. It is an eager hope. It is an earnest hope that was rooted in the Lord. What about the Lord? His sovereignty in total control over all things. Paul trusted in that sovereignty. His hope was in that sovereignty. Paul is in a Roman prison. Undeterred. Unwavering. Doesn't compromise or capitulate in order to get out of the prison. He stands strong because his hope is in the Lord. Though many, Paul says earlier, are mocking him. And preaching Christ out of selfish ambition. While he's in prison, though many are trying to split the church, though many in the church are wavering in their faith, he is confident in the sovereignty of God, knowing that he'll accomplish whatever he wants to do, whatever he has decreed to pass, specifically in his remnant, in God's people. Philippians 1.6, Paul again expresses, this confidence in the Lord. He says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. His hope is in the Lord. This is a theme that is throughout all of Paul's letters, but is most keenly seen in a well-known verse. We all know, Romans eight twenty-eight, that God works all things according to his purpose. His sovereignty. His total control. He hopes, he says in verse 19, to send Timothy so that he can learn of the church's condition. First we see Paul's trust in God's sovereignty. Now we see his 
love and concern for the church. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be in good spirits when I learn of your circumstances. Again, though he is in a prison, he is not concerned for himself. He is concerned for the church. That is his main concern. If you turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you don't, well actually you don't have to turn over there, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 28, excuse me, I'll back up and start in verse 26. Though Paul goes through many trials, he reiterates that his concern is for the church. 2 Corinthians 11 starting in verse 26, he says, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the desolate places, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brothers. I have been in labor and hardship and many sleepless nights and starvation and thirst, often hungry and cold without enough clothing. Apart from these external things, Paul says in verse 28, there's the daily pressure on me of my concern for all the churches. His concern is for the church. What what are you concerned about, beloved? Is your concern about you and what you can get out of the church? Or is your concern about everyone else in the church? Surely that's what we ought to do. Yes, that's what Paul exhorts us to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition, Philippians 1. But thinking less of yourselves regard others more important than you. Can you say that is true of your life? Can you say that your trust is not in men, but in God who is sovereign over all? Are you concerned about you? Or are you concerned about the brothers and sisters beside you. Paul wants the church to be in good hands. And he knows the church is in good hands. Again, reiterating, because his trust is in the Lord. His hope is in the Lord. Paul's eager, earnest hope is that the Lord will take care of the church through the service of his servant, Timothy. Going back to Philippians 2, Verse 24, Paul says, And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will also be coming out shortly. So Paul does expect to get out. But his love and longing for the church is so strong that he has no other choice than to send Timothy while he awaits his release. Why does Paul want to send Timothy? Because Paul needs encouragement. Though Paul to us is this immovable powerhouse evangelist, preacher, theologian, he indeed was human. Like you and I, he needed encouragement. He needed to be edified. Specifically, he says that the church was doing well. He wanted to know of their circumstances. He wanted to know that the church was being faithful with what he had called them and exhorted them to do. So we've seen Paul's trust in God. We've seen his genuine concern for the church. Now look at verse 20. He says, For I have no one else, speaking of Timothy, of kindred spirit, 
who will genuinely be concerned about your circumstances. Here, we see Paul's love for Timothy, and not only that, but Paul's humility. Paul, though he was an apostle, though he was an apostle, though he was given direct revelation from God, though in 2 Corinthians 12.2 he tells us he was caught up into the third heaven and saw and heard things that cannot be explained, that no one else has. He is not arrogant. He is not boastful. He does not see himself superior to Timothy. Paul has credentials nobody can come close to matching. And he expounds on that in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. But he doesn't see himself higher or better than Timothy. Paul doesn't win the limelight or says, sorry guys, you'll have to wait for me till I get out of prison because there's no one as good as me. No. Paul says, I'm going to send Timothy. We are kindred spirits. He has the same desire and love for you as I do. What humility is that? This is the kind of spiritual service that God blesses, one that gladly and willingly hands over the reins to others who are faithful, who doesn't see themselves as the sole person, but recognizes that God has given His church multiple servants, faithful People And Paul knows that he's not the only servant teacher, but that God has gifted his church with many. And Paul is humble enough and willing to hand over the reins because he knows the ministry he has is not his, but is the Lord's. The church is not his church, but it is Christ's. Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 11 through 13, Paul tells us, And he, Christ himself, gave us some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Paul's aim in ministry was to edify the saints, to build up the church, to exalt Christ. Yes? To the glory of Christ. It's all for Christ. He recognizes that God has given many gifted people to serve his church. He is not the only one. And so Paul humbly says, I am going to send Timothy, of whom he and I are kindred spirits. He's a faithful man. He has the same love and desires for you as I do. And it's all for Christ. Philippians 1.21, that is the mantra of Paul's life. For to me, to live is Christ. Everything Paul does, all of Paul's being, is all in Christ. So it ought to be with us, beloved. Paul does not see himself as the sole person 
of the ministry, but just one of many. He's not big on his ego. And how different would our churches and ministries be if other people modeled Paul this way? If they weren't in the ministry for themselves to stroke their ego, ego, to boast themselves up, but humbly recognizes that there are many who are faithful. These characteristics in Paul, his trust in the Lord and his humility, we ought to emulate. Look at verse 21, Philippians 2. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Here, the word for, Paul is contrasting everything he's said of Timothy. So in contrast to sending Timothy whom I am of kindred spirits with, Paul says, there are many who are not like Timothy. They're not humble, but they seek after their own interests, not that of Christ. They all. Who is this they all? Specifically the people Paul talks about in chapter 1, verses 15 through 16. Look there in Philippians. Paul says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife but some also out of goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me affliction in my chains. The people Paul is talking about here, that they all are those who do what they do, who serve the Lord out of selfish ambition. Paul is not talking about the blatant atheist. He's talking about people who claim to know Christ. Which are you? Why do you do what you do? Is it rooted in selfish motives? Selfish ambition? Or is it for Christ? It should be. For Christ. I don't know about you, but I don't want to fall into this category of phonies Paul is talking about. Their interests are for themselves, not Christ's interests. That's what he says. So, what are Christ's interests for us? What is his will for us? 1 Thessalonians 4.13 tells us our sanctification, us being made more and more like Christ, that is Christ's interest for us. That is Paul's concern for us, our sanctification. That is Timothy's concern. Are you concerned about that? Are you concerned about becoming more and more like Christ, becoming conformed to his image? Are you seeking that? That's Paul's concern. And though he is confident 
that that sanctification will be brought to completion. He says that in Philippians 1.6. This is the work he refers to. We ought to be concerned about that as well. What Christ's interests are, ours is. We're not concerned with the culture. What they say a church should be, what they say Christians should be. We're concerned with what Christ says we ought to be. Our concerns ought to be that of Christ's. Our sanctification. Look at verses 22 through 23. Paul goes back. He says, but you know of his, that is Timothy's, proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I evaluate my own circumstances. So even though there are people in the church, Paul says, who are in it for themselves, there is Timothy who has the same love and affections for you that I do, and I am sending him to you quickly. So who's Timothy? We've passed Paul now. Who is Timothy? Well, several times throughout the scriptures, Paul refers to him as his child in the faith, 1 Timothy 1-2, meaning that Paul led him to Christ. He was a young man, age probably around 15 to 17 years old. We know that from 1 Timothy 1.5 and 3.15 that he was taught the scriptures from a young age by his mother and his grandmother. Paul talks about Timothy in Acts chapter 16, verse 2, speaking of his good reputation with the communities. As stated, he led him to Christ. He discipled them. And Timothy would then become a pastor. And Timothy is the only one in Scripture who is privileged to be personally discipled by Paul. Paul did disciple many, but there were none closer to Paul than Timothy, his child in the faith. Again, verse 20, Paul speaks of their relationship. They are of kindred spirits. Look at verse 22. But you know of his proven worth that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. What a commendation from Paul. Paul doesn't have to say much about him. He says, you know his proven worth. In other words, it's evident. It's clear. There's no question about his life. There's no doubt Here, proven worth conveys, excuse me, the idea of being tested, which is the same idea Paul talks about in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. Turn there to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 10, after talking about the qualifications for overseers and deacons, Paul says in chapter 3 of verse Timothy, verse 10, And these men, 
after meeting these qualifications, must also first be tested and let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So he's saying, listen, Timothy has been tested. He stood the test. He's passed. His life has been proven, proven worthy. That I have nothing more to say about him. You know his proven worth. You've seen it. Proven worth in what specifically? He tells us in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Again, we see that bond, strong bond between Paul and Timothy. Him serving Paul like a child wanting to please his father. Timothy isn't in the ministry with his own agenda, but he serves Paul submissively as needed, when needed. And his life is the foundation and and upholds his, his testimony. That is yet another characteristic we need. Humble submissiveness, the way Timothy is to Paul, serving however we're needed. We're all gifted in different ways. The good servants of Christ don't have boastful agendas that tell you what they're going to do, but serve humbly and faithfully when called upon. These characteristics we see in Timothy, his humble submissiveness, his willingness to serve faithfully, and having the biblical qualifications, a godly life is what we ought to strive to have. Now look at verses 25 through 26. We move on to the next character in this passage, Epaphroditus, verse 25 of Philippians 2. But I regarded it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need, because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard he was sick. Epaphroditus is not a well-known person throughout Scripture, but we know enough of him here, right? He is not a plan B but simply another great addition Paul is sending along with Timothy to the church in Philippi. Another humble servant that Paul can't help but send. Paul calls him several things, further compounding the greatness of Epaphroditus' service to the church. First, he calls him his brother, worker, soldier, Messenger and minister to Paul. How incredible to be called such things by Paul. Although we don't know a lot about him, we know everything we need to know. Epaphroditus wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a pastor, but a highly esteemed servant, worker for the church. And Paul outlines, again, his immense youthfulness. He says, he's not only my brother in Christ... But he's a hard worker. He serves the church well. He's a soldier, meaning that he took commands and executed them just as a soldier does in an army. He's the church's messenger, a high honor in the early church. 
The church's messenger does what a messenger does. It takes and receives messages. They didn't have Twitter. Where they could tweet out updates on ShepCon, they had to take them physically by letter. They didn't have Shepherd's Conference back then. But it would be cool if they did. He is the church's messenger, and he ministered to Paul's needs. And here, the pronoun used for my and my needs conveys, as one commentator put it, their deep and loving relationship. Now look at verse 27. Paul says, For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him all the more eagerly, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less concerned. What? Epaphroditus, the great servant of the church, was so ill, he almost died. But again, just as Paul's concern is for the church, so is Epaphroditus's. He hears that the church has found out of his sickness and is therefore distressed because he doesn't want the church worrying about him. What? Incredible. What a, what a selfless man. I get a little cough and a cold and I feel like I have to tell the whole world. And Epaphroditus is concerned. I don't want you guys to be distressed about me, although I'm dying. What a selfless servant of Christ. Putting Paul and others before himself to advance the gospel, almost dying because of it. Epaphroditus is a Philippians 2, 3 through 4 man. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. Paul tells us in verse 2 to be united in spirit. Thinking on one purpose, here it is in verse 3, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but with humility of mind, regarding one another as more important to yourselves. Epaphroditus did this almost to the point of death. Not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Though he was close to death, God had mercy on him. And Paul here reflecting on the divine providence of God working in Epaphroditus' life is encouraged. These characteristics we see in Epaphroditus, his hard work ethic for Christ. Finding needs and fulfilling them just as he did in Paul, we ought to emulate in our lives. These are all characteristics of true spiritual service. Verse 29, Paul says, Receive him then in the Lord with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to fulfill what was lacking in your service to me. Servants of Christ, who emulate these qualities that we've seen today, these characteristics. We are to hold them, Paul says, 
in high regard, which does not mean idolize, but to have the utmost respect for. Why? Because their service to the church is validated and backed up by their godly lives. Their lives match what they do, what they believe, and what they say. These men here, Paul commends, fit the qualifications of 1 Timothy and Titus 3. Incredible. He commends their lives and their service. Notice here that Paul doesn't say anything about their theology. Man, they really got down the doctrine of soteriology. They really got down the doctrine of the incarnation. No, he he commends their lives. And we must get doctrine right. You must get your theology right. But if your my if your life, excuse me, hasn't been changed, then so what? So what? You know a bunch of theology. So what? You know a bunch of facts and have a bunch of commentaries on your bookshelf. Does your life match what you say you believe? Is it manifestly expressed in the way we see in Timothy, Paul, and Epaphroditus? Your life must match what you say you believe. And James tells us exactly that in the book of James, yes? So what you have faith? Even the demons believe. Satan is a good theologian. Show me your life. How has your life been changed? How has your life been transformed, James 2? We are to hold people who emulate these qualities in high regard because of their godly example. Because everything they did, though it was for the edification of the church, it's rooted in the sake of Christ, for the sake of Christ. Verse 30, because he came close to death for what? The work of Christ. Again, can I... Can I stress enough, not himself, but for Christ? I don't know what your motivation is. What what motivates you? Is it Christ? Or is it your own selfish ambition? This is our motivation, beloved, to pursue and display these characteristics and our spiritual service to Christ because it's all for him. He is our motivation. He is the reason we do what we do. Can you say with Paul in Philippians 1.21 that for to you to live is Christ, that he is your everything? Brothers, what we see here though it is not explicitly said, is a sweet reminder that you weren't just saved from sin, from hell, from God's wrath. Beloved, you were saved for so much more. You weren't just saved from God. You were saved for Him, to serve Him. 
You weren't saved to be a spiritual couch potato. You were saved to get up and do something for him. Although your salvation was predetermined, so is everything you do for him. Your works. Ephesians chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10. Paul tells us this. For we are his workmanship. You know what that means? You're not his own. Excuse me. Well, you're not your own. You are his. You belong to him. Verse 10. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in him. You weren't saved to do nothing. You were saved to serve him and walk in the works which he predestined before the world began. You are his workmanship. He bought you with a price. You are not your own. You are his. Is your service rooted for his glory? Or your vain ambition. Christ has done so much for us, has he not? I can't think, help but think of everything Christ has done for us as I look at these men and the characteristics of their lives. Beloved, God snatched you from dangling over the pit of hell and saved you to do His will. What grace. What mercy. You weren't just saved from hell and sin. You were saved for Him, for His glory, to do His work. Turn to the book of 2 Corinthians real quick. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 14. Paul tells us what drives him, what should drive us, what controls us. Verse 14 of chapter five. Paul says, "For the love of Christ controls this, controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died." And he died for all that is his own, his remnant, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Christ died for you and saved you so that you would no longer live for yourself, but for him. Whereas you once were living for yourself in selfish ambition... Christ, having predestined your salvation in your works, came for you to satisfy God's wrath. So that you would no longer live for yourselves, but for Him. Who do you live for? What controls you? Has anything Christ done for you not been enough motivation To give your all to Him? 
His condescension, taking on human flesh, living the life you and I could never live, and paying the debt we could never pay, now living in intercession for us, is that not enough motivation for you to be humble? To do everything for the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 10.31 Shame on us when we do things selfishly. Shame on us when we think that the church is about us individually and what we can get out of it. It's all about Christ. And it's His love that controls us. It doesn't matter how big of a role you think you have or don't have in the church, what role you play in the church. Whatever you do, you serve Christ faithfully, emulating the characteristics we've seen today throughout Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. You don't have to be a preacher, prolific theologian, or have a podcast To have an impact for the kingdom of Christ. Just be faithful like Timothy. Just be humble like Epaphroditus. Serving with all your might. Rooted in what Christ has done for you. Is that your life? No matter what role you play in the body of Christ, you matter. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 26. The hand does not say to the body, I do not matter. The eye does not say to the foot, you do not matter. Everybody, no matter your role, matters to the body, is vital to the body. We all serve, should be serving for Christ. Rooted in what he has done for us, we ought to emulate the characteristics we've seen today. And beloved, may I say that that is what I see in you. The people we reflected on at the beginning of this message, so much more than them, I look up to you because of your love for Christ what I have seen him do in you, and what I see him still doing in you. Lives transformed by God's grace that manifests itself in the way you love and serve one another. I am so thankful for that. I am constantly encouraged and refreshed by that service. What a... What lives to model after, yes. What a sobering reality for me. I ought to emulate these things. The elders, you all ought to emulate these characteristics. The commitment that Timothy and Epaphroditus and Paul had to the church is the commitment we ought to have Rooted in what Christ has done for us. And may I say that is my commitment to you. 
to serve you the best that I can. I love you. I am encouraged by you. This past week, a group of us got to go to a conference. And there's many faithful servants there, but there's also men there that I saw that are in it for themselves. That are in it trying to get big. Trying to do things out of, or doing things out of selfish ambition. Trying, you know, to climb their way up the ladder so that they get to be the next big speaker at the conference. That's, that's not my goal. I don't care about that. My, my concern is Paul's for the church. And that I would be faithful. I, ha- I, don't, I don't really have a desire to speak at a conference. I was speaking to a brother not too long ago about a conference I had gone to earlier in the year. And he said, hey, who knows? Maybe you'll be speaking at that conference one day. And I said, no, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think so. And he said, how come? And I said, well, every time I preach, you fall asleep. And if I can't keep you awake, I don't know how I can keep a conference full of men awake. I'm just kidding. He, that, that brother does not, he's never been asleep. But, but that, 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 that's not what drives me. What drives me is, as Paul says, my love for Christ, my love for you. And so should it be for all of us, whether you're a preacher, whether you are the coffee maker, a window washer, no matter what you do, it's all for the glory of Christ and should be done faithfully for the edification of the church. I want to be faithful like these men do you. By God's grace, may we all emulate these characteristics. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the example we've seen in the lives of these faithful men, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus. Lord, I ask that you would strip us of our pride, our wants and our desires, but that rooted in what you have done for us, we would be faithful in our service to you and to your church. Father, your love, as the hymn says, so amazing and so divine, demands our soul, our life, are all. May it be true of us for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.